Welcome to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. The 2020 campaign season is finally upon us, and the Democratic field is beginning to take shape. Scores of presidential hopefuls have already announced their candidacy, and the campaign trail is heating up in early voting states like Iowa and South Carolina. Johnson Zala moderates a conversation between Democrats Drew Littman and David Reed, along with Republican Elizabeth Mayer, in which they tackle pressing issues such as ways Leader McConnell will use his powers to target Democratic senators seeking the nomination. Welcome back to another Brown Scene podcast. I'm Johnson Sala. Today I'm joined by three of my colleagues, Drew Littman, Elizabeth Mayer, and David Reed, and we will be discussing the 2020 presidential campaign. On a personal note, I'd point out that Drew was a professor of mine years ago when I was a student at American University here in Washington. Today, it's good to be on the other side of the equation in a position to be directing the questions. <laughs> so let's get going. We're less than a year from the Iowa caucuses. Candidates seem to be jumping in feet first, so we're going to be doing the same. Let's talk about the 2020 campaign with a focus on the primary contest and how things are shaping up thus far. So on the Democratic side, we have nine candidates that have already announced and more are expected to announce in the coming weeks. Many of these candidates have for months been making stops in the early primary states, specifically Iowa and New Hampshire. And I was looking back in recent presidential cycles, the results of the Iowa caucuses haven't always been a good predictor of who will win the Republican nomination, thinking about Cruz in 2016, Santorum in 2012, Huckabee 2008. But Iowa does seem to be a good bellwether on the Democratic side. Clinton in 2016, Obama in 2008, Kerry in 2004, and so on. And to find a counterpoint, we would have to go all the way back to 1992 when home state Senator Tom Harkin won the Iowa caucuses but lost out on the nomination to Governor Bill Clinton. So to Drew and David, my first question is pretty simple and straightforward. How important is Iowa for Democratic candidates, and who do you see shaping up as an early frontrunner? Well, uh, thank you, John. As you know, on the Hill, I was chief of staff to Senator Al Franken from Minnesota. So our fellow Minnesota senator, of course, was Amy Klobuchar. And I observed Senator Klobuchar very closely. Iowa is a neighbor state of Minnesota. They share a border. And Amy has always spent a lot of time there. She's always been in demand to speak to Democratic groups there, to do fundraising and other activities. And I think the approach that's worked for her very well in Minnesota works for her in Iowa as well. She typically has the highest home state favorable ratings of any Democratic senator. And I think that translates to Iowa. Parts of Iowa are in Minnesota media markets. So they will have seen ads and news coverage of of Amy Klobuchar. So I think she's got a theory that that first caucus state is just right for her. You can look at it as you uh, had indicated Senator Tom Harkin, home state senator, was a winner in 92. That did not indicate that he was going to sweep the primaries and and win the nomination. Amy may be in a similar position, uh, a favorite daughter sort of position, but she certainly certainly is in a good, in a, I would say, the poll position as the race begins. Um, I would agree with that, but I think that with the California primary being pushed up uh, to Super Tuesday, that really does throw a wrench into the original calculus from years past, especially given that Kamala Harris uh, will be uh, coming in hot, coming from California. Uh, so I think that that's definitely something that 
sort of lessens the importance of some of those earlier states in New Hampshire and Iowa. Now, that's a great point. And, and Drew, you talk about a home state senator, Tom Harkin. You know, by my collection of folks we're looking at who are currently running or might be running, Eric Swalwell, congressman from California, is actually the only one that I see as being from Iowa. Do you think that has any impact? Does that help? Or do you think his name ID is so low that competing with a Booker or Harris or potentially a Biden, uh, that that offsets any advantage? I'd call it a plus factor. It doesn't make him anything close to a favorite. But since Iowa is uh, campaigning is very much on a retail basis, which is to say you're actually meeting voters, going to their homes, their living rooms, supermarkets, clubs, it gives Swalwell something to talk about, to try and bond with people. I think they will see him to a large degree as a Californian, and they certainly don't see themselves as Californians. So it's a little tricky for him. I think while Swalwell has told people he's running, he doesn't actually have a campaign up and running. And there are other candidates in this mix, I think, who we both know, some of whom we know personally, who have told people they're running but may not actually be running when you get right down to it. So so whether Swalwell really gets in is also going to depend on a whole bunch of other variables. And we could talk, maybe get to some of those later. Yeah. And and both David and Drew, you raised California pretty early on. So Iowa, as we know, the Iowa caucus is a core first, and then that's followed by New Hampshire, Nevada, and South Carolina. But there has been a lot of talk about California for the reason that it moved its primary up from June to early March and is now part of the Super Tuesday contingent, which includes nine states and is kind of a, an early big battle for a lot of these candidates. So, Drew, you know, having a lot of footprint, having worked for a California senator, what impacts do you believe this move of California going from June to early March will have on the Democratic primary? Thanks, John. As you mentioned, I I worked for Barbara Boxer, the senator from California, and I'm struck by the fact that Super Tuesday, our listeners may not know, occurs exactly one month after the Iowa caucuses. By the end of Super Tuesday, when the dust settles, Democrats will have picked, I think, 55 percent of the pledged delegates because California has been moved up, which means we actually, despite having 20 candidates, 30 candidates maybe in the mix, we may have a resolution within a month after the process actually begins, which would be very unusual. California, when the primary was in June, as David mentioned, was pretty much irrelevant. It just came too late to matter. I think, though, it's very hard for us to project what the exact effect is of California moving up. We know it's going to have an effect, but we don't know what it is. I don't think there's as much of a home state advantage. It's not Tom Harkin in Iowa, because the state's just too big. It's divided into too many media markets. So Kamala Harris, off to a great launch, has won statewide in California, but has not necessarily won over the entire California Democratic primary electorate. I think California is a state. It's not a retail political state. It's a state where you have to be on the air, and you have to be on the air in L.A. and San Francisco and San Diego and Sacramento. It's enormously expensive, and your field operation is going to be enormously expensive. So typically well-funded candidates have an advantage, but a charismatic candidate who's good on TV, you know, Cory Booker, for example, could do extremely well in California. I, I think, generally speaking, liberal candidates do better in California in primaries. Yeah. And Drew, I think you bring up an important point when talking about the media markets. You know, as you go through these 
initial four states, Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, South Carolina, not what you think of as traditional big, expensive media markets like a New York or a Philadelphia or Washington or out in Chicago. Uh, but you know, as we look at California, you're talking about a lot of media markets, and obviously fundraising comes in and becomes an important component pretty early in the process. I think the price tag for the 2016 presidential came in at well over two billion. So, so David, turning to you, what is your analysis on the fundraising of various Democratic candidates uh, to date? Uh, and will the shorter primary schedule impact how these candidates need to fundraise? Sure. Thank you, John. Um, yes, I do think that this will uh, speed up the need for these candidates to really bring in the cash um, as quickly as possible. And right now, just looking at the numbers from filings at the end of the year, Warren has the the absolute advantage. She's got $11 million cash on hand, followed by Gillibrand with just a little over ten. Um, Sanders still does have quite a, a, a cash advantage on the others. And then you go down from there. Booker, Kamala Harris, who we've already uh, mentioned, brought in uh, $1.5 million just right after her announcement. So I think that, um, yes, you do have these early states that don't have as, as expensive of media markets, but these are going to be opportunities for these candidates to really raise from the grassroots given their performance in these early states. Uh, and that's going to be extremely important going into some of the states that do have the more expensive and large media markets, um, i.e. California and some of the others on the Super, tu- on Super Tuesday. Uh, so I, go, I think you're going to continue to see an uh, increased amount of their time dedicated to that fundraising apparatus, um, even while you also are going to see an increased reliance on those small donors uh, that are going to be funneling in based on some of these big wins, as well as uh, appearances uh, and cable television and other things that may come up that would go viral. I'm thinking about hearings on the Hill for those that are senators, um, you know, other other things that might help to drum up some of that grassroots support. Yeah, thinking back to 2008 when, you know, then-Senator Obama was running, uh, you know, I remember everyone talking about his fundraising prowess and how it really changed the game, especially grassroots fundraising. And with so many qualified candidates running for president, it, it feels like records are meant to be broken. And mm-hmm. so the over $2 billion we saw in the last cycle uh, in 2016, you know, we might very well exceed that pretty early on in the process. But so, you know, a lot of the names we've been throwing out today, you know, it, it feels like there are a lot of Democratic senators. At times, it feels like, you know, half of all Democratic senators are running for president. Uh, but when we look at the actual roster of those that have already announced or could announce a bid, uh, it shakes out to be about nine sitting Democratic senators uh, running for president or could be running for president. And my gut tells me that this is going to have an impact on operations, decorum, the overall agenda of the Senate. We have two former Senate staffers uh, with us today. But adding you into the conversation, uh, Elizabeth, you know, we're already seeing these Democratic candidates running for president, that that is impacting how they approach hearings, how they approach votes. We saw that with the most recent appropriations conference report, those that voted against it, including the likes of Warren Booker and others. Uh, But we're also seeing Majority Leader Mitch McConnell on the Republican side really leverage this into his political calculus, seeing he's going to call up things like the Democrats' Green New Deal for a vote in the Senate and really try to paint them into a corner or pigeonhole them on certain issues. How do you think the presidential race is impacting the Senate and will do so moving forward? Well, I think when you're the party in charge, um, like Republicans are right now in the Senate, I will just say this, an absence is the same as a no vote. And so if you aren't counting on any of those Democratic contenders to vote yes, you can still 
hold votes, cloture votes and other uh, important votes, knowing that unlike a couple of cycles past where Republicans were running, this time around, it's it's not the case. And so procedurally, I don't think there will be as much an effect as has been the past for Senator McConnell. He'll keep going. For the gutcha votes, um, sure. I think, you know, you just alluded to maybe some environmental votes that some Republicans think don't make sense. I think that um, there would be an easy way to find a shell House bill and tack on this 70 percent on the wealthy and other tax increases vote to make um, Democrats sort of feel uncomfortable about voting for a 70 percent tax on anyone in this country. And so I think that there will likely be a good potential for Senator McConnell um, to 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 do a couple of these votes. I will say, though, there are other housekeeping issues um, that are going to keep the Senate you know, pretty tied up over the next several months. And beyond that, and very important, will be nominations. And so that's going to take um, a lot of floor time as well. Yeah, and I think your, you know, your point about absence and no votes kind of leads into the next question I had in mind. You know, thinking back to the 2018 midterm elections, McConnell did a lot to keep Democratic senators here in Washington voting because of the map and the fact that there were vulnerable Democratic incumbents in states like you know, Montana, North Dakota, Indiana, so on and so forth. But as we're looking at the Senate 2020 uh, election map, you know, Republicans are certainly going to be on the offense in, in maybe one or two states. Alabama, Senator Doug Jones there probably being the most vulnerable uh, Senate Democratic incumbent. Uh, but McConnell also needs to protect a handful of vulnerable seats in states like Colorado, Arizona, and elsewhere. So how do you see McConnell really striking that balance, driving the president's agenda, driving the Senate Republican majority agenda, but also balancing the election year politics for both the White House and for the Senate? Well, it's a difficult needle to thread. And uh, I believe Senator McConnell is, as we speak, um, trying to figure out how to also call for votes that are going to positively affect the most vulnerable Republican senators in the chamber from the chamber. Um, And that includes Senators Collins and Gardner, um, who come from, at this stage of the game, um, highly purple states. So I think that he will be scheduling votes and it's it's difficult to come up with votes that are you know just purely political to help someone win their race you also have to be a responsible senate majority leader and get things done so it it is a fine needle to thread but if there are times that he's going to try to keep people there it's just not as there just aren't as many people who will care to be there for votes that he calls who are running for president now from the Democratic Party. And so he has to fit that into the calculus as well. John, can I add something? Please. I don't think you can talk about McConnell's leverage without talking about the fact that change of control of the House Mm -hmm. uh, has put the Democrats in charge. Because in 2016, you're right, he did try and jam the Democrats by keeping them in to vote. But then you were except for nominations, you were voting on things that actually could become law mm-hmm. because Republicans had House, Senate, and White House. Now, McCon- whatever McConnell brings, the House isn't going to vote on it. So you don't have that same threat. For example, if, it's, if he wants to put Affordable Care Act repeal on the floor, 
well, all your Democratic presidential candidates would want to be there to vote against repealing the Affordable Care Act, except now the House is never going to take that up. So it's an idle threat now. So, so his leverage is diminished. Note, though, that he is teeing up a vote on the Green New Deal, in contradiction to what I just said, that the House passed because he wants to make Booker and Harris and Warren and Gillibrand vote for it or vote against it. He sees it as a lose either way. You're either voting against your grassroots constituency or you're voting against the the farmers in Iowa whose cows produce all that gas or the people who drive in these big rural states are very car dependent. So, so McConnell, that, that's a more typical use of your ability to schedule votes to try and jam the other party. And then things that you know McConnell can sell to the base. You know, we've already heard a lot of talk that over the next two years expect to see nominations, 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 mm-hmm. both within the administration, but probably more importantly within the uh, judicial branch, you know, filling uh, filling vacancies in the courts, and that's something you can bring home and sell to the Republican base. Correct? Yes, that's 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 very true. The base is counting on um, additional, more conservative judges um, to be put on various court levels. I would say, I would say, from what I've seen, and I've worked on um, nominations, the base cares a great deal about Supreme Court nominations. I'm not sure if you're talking to your base voters about a D.C. Circuit confirmation uh, or a district court. I'm not sure they really register that. That's true on both sides. Well, just to take it from the political to the substantive, I mean, I think that Drew is correct. But I also know from having worked for a Republican senator who cared a great deal about getting um, what he believed to be appropriate nominations through the Judiciary Committee. They also, many of them, because they think it's the right thing to do, care about not just the Supreme Court, um, but other nominations as well um, through the judicial system. And you, Elizabeth, you talked about uh, threading a needle, and, and Drew, you brought up you know the fact that we do have a new Democratic House majority. And so let me turn to, to you on this, uh, David, but it seems like Mitch McConnell isn't the only one needing to thread a needle in Washington, that we have Speaker Nancy Pelosi that has similar challenges, and she's confronting demands within her caucus for very aggressive oversight of the Trump administration, but still needing to show that the Democratic majority can can legislate and that they can bring wins home for a lot of vulnerable new Democratic freshmen who are going to be in tough races in 2020. So how do you think the new House Democratic majority will leverage its oversight powers? And do you see this having an effect on the 2020 campaign? Yes. And I, I do think that you're right, that the House Democratic leadership is balancing on a knife's edge here. Um, you do need to show to the more leftward leaning flank that you're uh, holding the Trump administration accountable uh, with oversight hearings. Um, but at the same time, you want to make sure that you are showing that you can legislate. And I think that a number of the members that came in, to your point, um, in red districts that had been flipped to blue will need to show that they can actually get some things done while they're in Washington. So what I think they should do is, uh, where appropriate, hold the hold the administration accountable and go after some of the more egregious things that have been committed, uh, but at the same time ensuring that they are uh, proving that they're being able to bring things home to their districts and that they're actually able to get uh, some compromises done in, in cutting deals with the Republican Party on some of the things that they'd made promises on through the campaign cycle last year. Uh, what I think might happen, though, is a is is a leftward lurch, uh, which does concern me as a as a Democrat. 
One issue, though, that is universally salient across party lines in all elections is corruption. And to the extent oversight hearings are focused not so much on an ideological preference, but on specifically cabinet members taking advantage of their positions. I think uh, Scott Pruitt, when he stepped down, Ryan Zinke, when he stepped down, each of them was at that time the subject of more than a dozen different investigations. So there's a lot of material there. No one defends corruption. And and that corruption goes right up to the White House. It goes to Trump in the way he conducts himself. If Democrats remain focused on that with very clear examples, that, I believe, will be a very significant factor in the presidential election. Yeah, and I think that's a fair point, though I do think we see a healthy amount of pushback that the Democratic Party can't just be anti-Trump, right. that the Democratic Party does need to legislate, that they do need to produce wins. And we've seen a lot of these committees, especially on the House side, Democratic majority, staffing up with very significant prosecutorial mm-hmm. staff, getting mm-hmm. ready to use that subpoena power uh, that they haven't had since they left the majority of the House uh, after the 2010 election. So, Elizabeth, do you see the potential for Democratic overreach actually helping the president in 2020? Um, I do. I uh, It's it's two-pronged. And I, I would say, first, I agree with Drew about the corruption um, part of it. But I will say, and it, this is more than a 30-second sound bite, but I'll try to shrink it, that you have a risk. You have Trump's base, and then you have people on you know, the far left on the Democratic side who are sort of gunning and who have been paying attention to all of these iterations of uncovering of information about, say, the Mueller investigation or otherwise. But you you also run the risk of there are independents who just aren't really paying attention to this. So you have the base on the right and the base on the left paying attention to it. But you have this group in the middle who who aren't paying attention to it. If the Democrats do a stellar job with these oversight hearings and who knows what's coming out in the Mueller report, that all changes. And independents who aren't paying attention right now could sort of come into the fold and could pay attention and could just be sickened, let's say, by something that comes out and could really decide there's no way I'm voting for Trump in the next presidential election. But if they don't pay attention to it and the Democrats veer too far to the left but still want to capture independents who aren't super far to the left, then then they lose. That That's my opinion. Yeah, I thought we might get through a Brownstein political podcast without talking about Robert Mueller, but I think that was uh, short-sighted on, on my end. Uh, and it's one of those golden questions, you know, how will the Mueller report uh, be resolved and what will uh, the impacts be on, on the election? I think there are a couple other golden questions. So let's do a quick uh, lightning round as we move to, to wrap up here. Uh, turn to my Democratic colleagues, David and Drew, first. Uh, Joe Biden is certainly on everyone's short list uh, as the potential Democratic nominee, may have the best name ID of anyone uh, running for, for president. So do you think Biden is running and how would his entry change the current dynamics of the Democratic primary? Um, I've talked to some pretty knowledgeable people in the in the Biden camp and what they understand from from the potential candidate is that he wants to run, which is always this has been true in every election cycle. Yep. He's talking to a lot of people about running. I think it is significant, however, that he has not actually organized the campaign yet. 
and doesn't have an immediate timetable for making a decision. But the biggest significance, I think, of Biden's decision is not so much whether Biden himself is a candidate, although he'd be very welcome as far as I'm concerned, is that there are a whole bunch of other Democratic potential candidates who are blocked if Biden runs. So my list would include maybe Michael Bennett, Mike Bloomberg, Terry McAuliffe, Steve Bullock, John Hickenlooper, Eric Holder, who also served in the Obama administration, Mitch Landrieu, Seth Moulton, Tim Ryan, a lot of them running either in the moderate lane or the sort of Democratic establishment politics lane or the industrial state lane, and maybe even Sherrod Brown in that category, because because part of Biden's rationale for running would be Democrats lost that Scranton area where he was born, and he's the guy to reverse that. Uh, before Trump won Pennsylvania in 2016, Democrats had won Pennsylvania in six straight presidential elections. So Biden thinks, I think, with ample justification that he could turn that around. But I think you've got all these other candidates, some very, very good candidates, who just might not have enough room to run if Biden gets in. And I think they're they're sort of pawing the ground near the finish line, waiting to find out if Biden's running. Yeah, just just a quick follow up on that. If I'm a Democratic candidate running for president, the best endorsement I could imagine getting is from former President Barack Obama. You bet. If Joe Biden jumps into the fray, does former President Obama step in or does he just say, I'm going to let the process work out and certainly be there for whoever the nominee is? But you know, Biden being his vice president doesn't necessarily make him come out and take a public position. I think he I think he will not endorse a candidate in the primary, whether Biden gets in or not. I think there may be some point where he does something more like a tacit endorsement. He appears with someone at an event, not an endorsement, but just sort of coincidentally wink, wink, appears with someone on stage where he's not endorsing, but the visual will be there in the newspapers and everybody can digest that. I certainly don't think he would do that early in the process because I think he thinks everybody benefits in in terms of motivating voters, registering voters, showing the diversity of the party, appealing to millennials. We should have 20 candidates. So I don't think he wants to he'd want to winnow the field very early. No. And I think that you know, he, he understands the process and the, the, the issues that came up with uh, appeared favoritism from the DNC to Hillary Clinton in 2016. And there will be an, a, a big effort to ensure that there is not any favoritism seen coming from the establishment or, of course, from the former president. Yeah. And I think, David, going back to your earlier point, talking about campaign finance, um, you know, Biden probably has some time. We're still a year out from the Iowa caucuses. But you know, as fundraising is an incredibly important part of running for president, some of that money will start to get locked up if he doesn't enter uh, the race soon mm-hmm. enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, what about on the Republican side? Turning to you, Elizabeth, you know, President Trump's approval rating has ticked up slightly, but still he remains below 50 uh, percent. Do you think that the president will have a legitimate primary challenger on the Republican side? And, and what potential circumstances could make that happen? Right now, um, with all the um, information I have about the world and what's going on with the Trump administration, I don't think he'll have a legitimate um, challenger. Um, You know, we were talking a little bit before we started this podcast about uh, Bill Weld. I don't believe he is a legitimate challenger. Senator Flake used to talk about challenging. I haven't heard that in a while. Um, But otherwise, I haven't really heard of anybody jumping into the fray. Now, if some of the corruption issues that Drew uh, mentioned earlier are quantifiable in the coming months, 
and Republicans start to turn against the president, then there there could be a, a serious attempt at a challenge. And also look at the money. President Trump has raised, just in these last two years, over $70 million. That is an unprecedented amount for a president at this point in their in their term. Uh, just as a, as a comparison, uh, President Obama at this same stage had only raised $3.3 million. $70 million to 3.3, and he's currently going into this election cycle, uh, this is President Trump, with $19.3 million in his war chest. So that's a huge summit to try to scale for anyone who's attempting to uh, pick him off in a primary. Yeah, and the, the last thing I will say about that, it, David is is, uh, is so right, is that I, I will say that there are, there are some who love the fact that the president really just continues to only reach out to the base. But there are others who grumble behind the scenes about an alienation of those folks who aren't quite as populist one or separately as far to the right two as those who are just solidly staunchly in his camp. And it does worry some folks. Yeah, I think that's absolutely uh, right. It's a good point, Elizabeth. And I think the, you know another question when we talk about potential things that might lead to a legitimate primary challenge are the economy. You know, do we see any weakening in the economy over the next two years? Because the president is tremendously popular within the base, but if the economy starts to decline, could you see some of those numbers? Uh, start to fall down. Drew, did you have something to add? Yeah, I think. Um, well, on the subject of the economy, I think the one thing to think about there is it can't get better, right? Unemployment is not going to go down to 1% probably. Inflation can only rise. It's not going to decline. So the economy is probably at the best point that it's going to be for, for President Trump. Mm-hmm. And, and so lastly, uh, so we've gone through the Democratic side of the equation, the Republican side of the equation. But you know, in Washington today and, and on the political campaign trail, I think we see a pretty stark divide between the two parties, between their platforms, between the candidates running. And that has yielded itself to plenty of discussion about an independent candidate, someone stepping in uh, to run as a third party. Former Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz is considering running probably the most high-profile name. Uh, so I'll put this to, to the group, but do you think we get a legitimate independent candidate? And, and if so, will it make a difference? I'll start. Um, I don't know enough about Howard Schultz to really have a, a great position yet. From what I've seen so far, I don't... And this is almost a compliment, but I don't feel like he's enough of a politician yet to um, know exactly what to say all the time, to be a legitimate threat to either side. You know, I'll give the CNN sort of town hall or interview as an example where he wouldn't say what percentage he would tax the wealthy. He just said he was uncomfortable and didn't like the 70 percent. So he's going to have to flesh out his positions a lot more, I believe, to to be a, a threat. And everybody always talks about how he could potentially take from the, the Democrats. If he plays his cards right, ultimately, he could also take from Trump, in my opinion. Yeah, that's a, that's a good thing to raise. There is a lot of uh, hand-wringing on the Democratic side that a independent candidate automatically draws votes away from whoever the Democratic nominee might be. I've read some studies that that might not actually be borne out in reality. Drew, do you have a position on that? I have an extremely strong position on that. When he talks about issues and when he talks about what's wrong with the system, it's entirely a critique of Democrats. So he, right now, he's he's a 
loosely guided missile pointed at the at the Democrats. In the end, I think Trump is so overwhelmingly unpopular and the desire to get him out of office is so great that it's possible that Schultz wouldn't make a difference. I think there are a hell of a lot of Jill Stein voters in places like Wisconsin who have buyer's remorse uh, because those votes could have been decisive. And it, we probably don't have time to unpack all the lessons of the of the 2018 midterms, but turnout proves it, man. You see voters, voters are very unhappy about the Republican agenda. They're very unhappy about Trump. And the more time he spends talking about things like the wall, things that are remote from most people's concerns, great interest to his base. But those suburban voters who went from R to D, they don't they don't want or need that damn wall. David, final comment. Any thoughts on a third party candidate? Do we get one and and does he or she make a difference? Um, you know, I really do think that at the end of this process, we are going to have a single Democratic nominee and no viable third party uh, candidate. And if we do, um, that does concern me because I do think, uh, contrary to what Elizabeth's saying, uh, it will eventually pull from the Democrat. So I want to uh, stop there. Thank my colleagues for joining me today. As I started out the podcast, we're less than a year from the Iowa caucuses. The candidates are already running. We're thinking about these issues a lot. Uh, and I appreciate them joining. We'll keep our audience up to date as things evolve. Thanks, Thank John. Thank you for listening to the Brownstein High at Farber Shrek podcast series. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Visit bhfs.com for more information. Thank you, John.